Today's Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by Origin Dollar. With inflation still over 6% and CeFi lending platforms going bankrupt, DeFi protocols that earn interest on stablecoins are once again back on crypto investors' minds. APYs on Aave, Compound and Curve are currently around 2%. By the time you pay gas to stake and unstake, it's a question of if it's even worth it for most people. If you want to earn yield on your stablecoins without needing to pay gas, check out Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar stablecoin. OUSD's average APY over the past 30 days is 5%, twice the rate you get lending directly on blue chip protocols. The best part is the boosted yield isn't from leverage or extra risk, it's from extra collateral and is rigorously audited. This is because smart contracts on Curve and other dApps don't support rebasing, so their collateral is working for you. The way Origin describes it, for every $1 of OUSD, there's more than $1 in DeFi working for you. Origin wants you to know as the collateral earns yield through these dApps, the protocol routes rewards to your wallet on a daily basis. Do nothing and your OUSD balance grows daily. If you want to put your stable coins to work, check out Origin Dollar's website. You can mint OUSD from the dApp or swap your stable coins for it on Uniswap to start earning today. For those holding ETH, Origin Protocol is teasing the release of OETH, which does everything OUSD does, but for Ether. It holds liquid staking derivatives to optimize yield. Follow along on Origin Protocol's Twitter and Discord channels. Visit realvision.com slash origin dollar to learn more. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Today I'm joined by Lex Sokolin, Chief Crypto Economics Officer at Consensus. Welcome to the show, Lex. Hey, good to be here. Boy, that's a great title. Tell us a little bit about what that means and what you do. Um, it's one of the more difficult questions, actually, we'll probably cover today. <laughs> um, you know, at the core of blockchain protocols functioning well is the concept of crypto economics. And uh, that's a combination of figuring out, um, let's say, mechanisms for designing incentives so that uh, people behave in certain ways and you have game theoretical structures that make sure those behaviors happen you know so for example the security within the bitcoin model or within ethereum or the the mechanisms for paying fees within ethereum all of that is designed through let's say applied microeconomics and then on the other hand you're using crypto economics when you're thinking about building not particular companies so it's not like oh i want to make a really futuristic laundromat and make sure it's PNL is profitable, but rather I want to build an economy on a protocol, right? And so you're, you're creating these macroeconomic experiments using uh, mechanism design for how different people behave. And it's tricky, it's a new discipline. You know, you don't, you didn't used to have economists run experiments. That's not something they could do unless they worked at the Fed. Um, but now, you know, anyone, anyone in this discipline actually does it. And so my role is to analyze different protocols as well as to come up with token engineering models for the different projects that Consensus works on, as well as, you know, to take substantive views on the state of the macro economy and figure out how the company should respond to that. So let's talk about a lot of those things, the state of the macro economy, the state of the macro crypto economy, what's happening uh, in the Ethereum ecosystem, which Consensus, of course, has a special focus on, and which has undergone a recent series of upgrades known as Chappella. Talk a little bit about where we are in terms of the upgrades to the Ethereum ecosystem and what the impact is on people who are users of that ecosystem. 
Yeah, I, I think it's, for me, it's actually been really encouraging because um, crypto is very often filled with um, stories that people tell about how the future will be. You know, uh, mm. in the future, we'll have lots of applications and they're going to be very performant and they're going to be fast and they'll work really well and so on. There'll be all these use cases. And I think skeptics in our space often push around, push on these things like, is the the protocol scalable? How many transactions can it can it handle? Um, what's the security like? Is the security worth it? You know, is overclocking your graphics card and running server farms of miners is that worth the you know the energy cost of what we get for it? And so Ethereum's been on like a, a steady path to address all these different levels of pushback. You know, so going from uh, proof of work to proof of stake uh, has addressed uh, a lot of pushback from people who are ESG conscious or you know don't want mining to have an impact uh, in terms of energy consumption. And so going to a model like proof of stake um, essentially removes 99.9% of all of the, the emissions that would be uh, inherent in mining. And the... One, I think one of the tricky things also in the strategy between protocols is that you have Ethereum, which is currently the, the largest networks in, in terms of decentralized applications and usage. And then you have many other blockchains that are trying to compete with it as a layer one. You know, they're trying to compete with it as a market venue, as a place where computation happens, where attention goes. Um, and their infrastructure often is very innovative. You know, so proof of stake wasn't invented by Ethereum and it wasn't implemented by Ethereum first. Um, it was implemented by other layer ones. But then over time, Ethereum was able to incorporate that into its own model. Now, uh, the recent upgrade allowed uh, unstaking. So the withdrawal of a stake, um, you know, so you're committing capital into a box in order to provide security uh, to the network. And then now you're able to withdraw the capital back out. Now there's kind of complexity of how you do that and the timing around it and the queue and so on. But uh, the short of it is you're able to stake and unstake your capital, which for institutional investors, I mean, it's it's a but for requirement, right? To have liquidity um, from your investment and be able to, to take it out. Right. And that of and, course was not always the case, as you said, suggest pre Chappella, uh, that was locked on Beacon Chain and there wasn't the ability for users uh, of that network to then withdraw the stake. Exactly. Yeah. So people were using derivatives um, or wrap tokens, whatever you like to call them. Uh, and of course, derivatives have counterparty risk and and so on. And hey, can you we, can you explain that, Lex? Because I think that it confuses a lot of people. There are a lot of different terms uh, in this space to describe the way yeah. that model works. LSD being one of them, liquid staking derivatives, obviously a little bit of a tongue in cheek name there. Uh, but give us just the big picture, 50,000 foot overview of uh, what the options were pre Chappella from the staking ecosystems around Ethereum and what they are today? Sure, um, you know, this can get very confusing quickly. So I think just getting and getting a concept of like collateralization or a derivative or um, even like a deposit account at a bank, right, is, is important to get an intuition for that. So let's say you have one case uh, in, which, in which you you hold a sandwich, it's like in your hands, delicious you can just go and bite that sandwich you know it's uh, it's in your custody in another example you don't have a sandwich you gave the sandwich away to somebody else but you have a receipt for that sandwich 
and it's the receipt says, hey, you can you can come into our shop and get that sandwich anytime you like. And everybody's trading these receipts on the sandwiches because they're much easier to trade because they're pieces of paper. Maybe they're digital pieces of paper, digital receipts, and so on. So you have a liquid market of these receipts. And so, you know, the concept of these receipts, they're derivative of the underlying asset. In, in my silly example, a sandwich, in the case of steak teeth, it's Ethereum, right? You're putting Ethereum into this box and you're getting, in the case of um, a protocol like Lido, you're getting a token that represents your steak. Uh, it's the receipt, it's not the actual sandwich. And the receipt is tradable, so it's a liquid staking derivative. It's derived from the underlying Ethereum that you've put into the box. And then it's liquid because you can take that receipt and go trade it with other people who have markets. Now, the, the fun part, of course, is can you cash in? Can you right. redeem your receipt? And the answers to that can, you know, are weird and complicated. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. There's smart contract risk. There's collateralization risk. There's regulatory risk, depending on how this stuff is set up. Um, but I guess that's the short of it. Well, let's talk more about that because I think it really is a great metaphor. Uh, whatever benefits a receipt may have in terms of liquidity, in terms of your ability to trade it, uh, obviously you can't eat the receipt. And the challenge comes uh, <laughs> when you have, you know, 22 sandwiches uh, and 35 receipts, when you have uh, regulators who seize the receipts in some sort, sort of enforcement action. I mean, there are a whole lot of things that can go wrong. Give us the menu of what some of those potential challenges could be uh, in a staked system that is based on a collateralized contract being traded? Yeah, that's that's a difficult question. Um, first off, there's, you know, different services build different connectors in, in how they create the, the, the actual derivative, right? So um, you can you can build it such that there is no mechanism that connects one price with the price of the other, right? Like it could just be you believe that the uh, the derivative is worth the same thing as the underlying asset. Um, and maybe you trust that the markets are going to arbitrage uh, the derivative such that the the prices are going to be equivalent. But we saw a depegging between ETH and staked ETH um, during the, you know, the the whole liquidation cascade that happened, including FTX and so on. So, so um, if you're following the sandwich metaphor, it means the sandwich is worth more than the receipt because you can't eat the receipt yes. uh, and there's some risk of you not getting the sandwich back. And there's, you know, and the, the chance of not getting the sandwich uh, can go up dramatically um, for all sorts of weird reasons. You know, somebody might hack um, the receipt printer and print to themselves a lot of receipts because they flash loaned it you know, and they're really cool on Twitter. Uh, and then the SEC, you know, shows up in their house and uh, that's a real thing uh, that happened to Mango Markets hacker, uh, Abraham Eisenberg, right? Yeah, so, we covered it right here at Real Vision. Exactly, yeah. So you can you can break the smart contract uh, and um, alternately you can, uh, for example, let's say you're relying on a centralized exchange to be the printer of the receipts, right? So let's say it's not Coinbase, but Kraken that has a staking program. Uh, well, if Kraken designs its staking program in a way that's not just kind of giving you access 
Oh, there we go. Uh, I've got to help my kid for a second. I'll be right back. All right, we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Lex, we were talking a little bit about sort of the theoretical construct uh, for how to understand the way this works. Uh, we talked about it in terms of sandwiches, which I think is a brilliant metaphor that I may have to steal because it's just so good. Uh, but let's transition that to talk a little bit about where Ethereum is right now. Uh, in terms of the menu of options out there for users of the, the ecosystem, uh, what are the options as you see it? What are the big buckets, the big categories uh, that you divide? the staking options into, obviously, as we mentioned at the top of the show, staking absolutely critical because Ethereum is now a proof of stake system. So what are those menu of options out there uh, in terms of users of the Ethereum ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go the derivative route, which is still probably from a user perspective, one of the easiest things to do. Um, in the MetaMask wallet, there's actually a way to, to do that in the portfolio app. Um, where you click through and you have a bunch of staking providers and you can just implement it. Um, and for retail users that, let's say, don't have 32 ETH, which is one of the key um, key requirements to be a more institutional participant. Um, and this is yep. built into the protocol itself. It's important to point out the 32 ETH limit. Yep, yep. Um, going, the, going the staking derivative route is easy and gives you exposure, although you do have the types of risks we talk about. Um, if you want to be more involved uh, and hands-on, you can try to run your own validator, uh, and or you can try to get somebody to run validator infrastructure for you. So for example, Consensus has a staking platform that's provided to large institutions and you know, we we run the software on their behalf, but everything is passed through. So it's not it's not creating intermediary tokens. It's passed through on behalf of the institution. Or alternately, if you're technical enough to run your own uh, validator and your own hardware, um, and you have the 32 ETH minimum, then uh, you can do it yourself. Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, talk a little bit about what's happening with zk EVM. Tell us what that is. I know this is something that's on your radar and that's important to you. Yeah, um, you know, so I started by saying that um, the protocols have been making these promises about the future, uh, promises about scalability and how much software they can run and the use cases they can have. And one of the things that got solved is going from proof of work to proof of stake. Well, another thing that's being solved is uh, transaction capacity as well as privacy. And <clears throat> this is in the creation of layer two networks. So layer two networks attach um, to layer one networks and they're able to you know, batch transactions uh, and use the security of the underlying protocol to run software at the top, right? So if you're frustrated in using Ethereum or some blockchain protocol because the gas fees are spiking when you know crypto caps are expensive or, um, CryptoPunks are trading a lot or there's some mint going on. In that case, um, you're really going to enjoy having a layer two where all these transactions take place. So ZK EVMs are <clears throat> a type of layer two um, that are zero knowledge proof. That's the ZK part. Um, and that means they come with certain privacy guarantees. And then the second part is EVM, which means they use the ethereal, uh, the Ethereum virtual machine. And so the software that's written for the ZK EVM 
is the same as the one that's written for Ethereum. So applications don't need to do a lot of work uh, or rewriting the software in order to function on yeah. this layer two blockchain. So essentially it's native in the in the Ethereum protocol. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. important to point out that the reason why these layer twos exist for people who may not be as technical is this is a the so-called scaling challenge. Uh, the speed of the transaction as well as the cost of the transaction uh, often being very high on the layer one, building a layer two on top of it in an attempt to solve that challenge. Exactly, yeah. And the question is, you know, which technology is going to win? Because we have a splintering right now of different attempts to create more transaction throughput for Ethereum. Because yeah, all of this stuff anchors in the layer back two in. space. And this has been a big question. Yeah. We've talked about it here a lot on the show. Uh, two of the methodologies, or at least the broad categories that we talk about here very often, Lex, uh, are optimistic roll-ups, uh, where the uh, underlying supposition of the chain is considered to be valid uh, unless challenged, and ZK, zero knowledge proofs, uh, a structure that comes out of some of the work that Silvio McCalli did, I believe, in the 1980s uh, at MIT with essentially finding a method of proving that you know something without revealing what that thing is. One of the metaphors that we often hear about this would be like if you went to a, you go to a bar and a bouncer asks you for your ID, you don't actually have to show them uh, your ID that has your, you know, your birth date on it and uh, all of your, uh, your dress and everything else. Uh, you can just prove by, via a challenge that you were in fact born before a certain date to prove that you were 21 as an example. Exactly. And I think that, um, the kind of issues of human dignity that's that are inherent to this, you know, where the systems we have today in the world um, own all of our identity. So we go around the digital world putting our stuff in various lockers. You know, we put our payment information, we put our um, search information, our search intent, um, we put our financial transactions into our banks and so on. Um, and so I think bringing ZK technology into the Web3 world kind of reinforces some of the promises that Web3 stands for. You right. know, where today, like, you can map a person to a pseudonymous address and a lot of the stuff you know, disintegrates in terms of privacy. And so ZKVMs, they don't just give you the performance uh, benefits. They don't just give you the compatibility with Ethereum, but they also, I think, pro provide people this kind of counter to the Web2 narrative um, where others are custodying your assets or others are custodying your information. Lex, that's so, so well said and so well explained. Uh, I also want to just open this conversation up to some of our viewers from questions. I know we have some that have already come in. Uh, please put down your questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on the air. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is membership is, of course, free. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up for free. If you're watching on YouTube, please tweet this link out so we can get this out to as many people as we possibly can. We are, of course, committed uh, to this conversation remaining free. Uh, on YouTube and on the platform. Of course, you can always follow me at Ash Bennington on Twitter. And please give Real Vision a follow at Real Vision on Twitter. We have a question, our first one that comes into us uh, from Chris Bullock, aka our friend Blast of Past here on Real Vision. Uh, he says, I have a question for Lex. I'm wondering uh, if he has any insight on what's driving ETH fees so high right now. I know we have meme coin mania going on, but I think there is more to it than that. Great question. Uh, from Blast to Past, any sense of what's driving ETH gas fees so high? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, I I don't have an answer for you on that one. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm not going to fib on it. Um, I do think that um, we are seeing uh, 
a little bit more activity from people um, in the last few months of the year, um, of this year. So, you know, there was a real lull in terms of consumer usage um, towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year, but then uh, starting in February, March and thereafter, activity picked up. Um, and we see that not just in transactions on chain, but, you know, in, in active users of, of MetaMask. Um, and my hope is that it's the diversity of transactions that, that people can take now, um, uh, rather than kind of one thing that's spiking. Um, but I wouldn't be able to point exactly to, to what the reason is recently. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart and something I'm incredibly interested in as well, which is AI, artificial intelligence. I'm curious uh, if you're thinking about AI broadly, and I know that you've written uh, a fair amount about this, but specifically uh, in terms of what is possible in the domain of crypto, this is a question that we get all the time. What are the potential use cases within the crypto ecosystem for AI? Yeah, so this is going to be a little bit of an attempt to future cast. And, you know, it can be embarrassing to like talk about AI and Web3 and the metaverse. And we're, we're, we've all deflated uh, a lot of that hopium. But at the same time, there are some really specific things that LLMs, large language models, and generative AI have shown to make to manufacture. And I think we're starting to get a much better sense for the type of thing that um, AI is that that is being made, right? It's this kind of cloud of um, human intelligence that's been automated, right? It's not a machine intelligence necessarily. It's all human intelligence that is now queryable and uh, essentially infinite uh, that you can search and use. Um, and I think of the sort of generative AI moment as the extreme of what Web2 is able to accomplish. So it's like, it's the logical conclusion of the Web2 thesis, which is that all content is infinite, all content is free. Um, you know, you have massive centralization to uh, companies that own data, and those are the companies that are able to produce the AIs, right? So it's, it's not a surprise that it's gonna be Microsoft and Google. Um, an interesting sort of aside is that Facebook released its model as open source, they're, they're in uh, spot number three. And so now the open source community is running both with large language models um, as well as image generation. And so the question is then, how does this extreme Web2 uh, terminus interact with Web3 uh, and its architecture? You know, and Web3 is a limiter on Web2. It creates economic architecture. It forces ownership on top of digital content because Web2 does not have digital ownership and then Web3 does. And so all the questions about, okay, well, um, AI labor, right? Can, can that, what is, is that worth something or is that worth nothing? Uh, is it just going to be infinite production of digital goods uh, or are those going to be anchored and traded, right? So if you want provenance, for example, in AI generated goods, that's a fantastic use case for blockchain. Or, for example, there's now. Um, what does that What does that mean, uh, Lex, uh, in terms of the provenance component? Yeah. So, um, you know, people were complaining about NFTs that you can um, you can right click and save as the NFT, right? Then that you have the JPEG, and the answer to that is, well, 
that's nice, but there's an original and then there is a copy, even if even if they're digital, right? So if I have the Mona Lisa and I take a really high definition picture and then I 3D print um, that canvas and it looks exactly the same as the physical object, there's still an original and the original has provenance and it has a history and it, everything that's happened to it actually happened to it and so on. And so it's mm. it's important for its story rather than it's important because of how the object is. And so with digital goods, um, this is also the case. Um, but now you you have this problem in a more multidimensional way where um, an artist might have their style reproduced by an artificial intelligence that's been trained on their style. So it generates right. objects that are identical to the style of that artist or maybe writing identical to the style of that artist uh, or music, right? And so having digital scarcity, having a, a, an NFT that says, okay, well, this was issued by the artist and this was issued by the hive overmind that was trained on the artist, you know, that's a useful distinction to have. And it's the only way we can really have digital goods with, with um, let's say, uh, authorship. Interesting. Yeah, to anchor. So it's them. essentially the blockchain becomes a, a mechanism for securing uh, the digital scarcity and understanding the authenticity or provenance of a particular piece of digital content because uh, blockchains are very good at doing exactly this, uh, securing in a public and open source way uh, the provenance and validity of a particular piece of digital um, representation of value in some form or other. Yeah, it could be, you could say that AI is creating a problem that blockchain has been solving. Um, so, by the so way, over the, over the weekend, I saw a piece that was written uh, by Tyler Cowen talking about the risks of artificial intelligence and essentially uh, asking the question of how do we know that anything is true if you have artificial intelligence that can generate with such a fair degree of veracity uh, this this the style, the structure, the potentially fake sources. And I think one potential. Uh, solution to the challenge that uh, Mr. Cowan raises is the idea of blockchains being the source of truth for open source digital veracity uh, and validity. Yeah, I think it's it's a very clear and analogous point, right? Because you think about a lot of the pushback before is like, well, why do we want, why do we care about news on chain? What's the, why do we care about this? What's right, the, right. what's the cost? savings what's the revenue generation and now it's like we care because we don't want to be stuck in a gigantic machine vortex of misinformation and the only right. way to make our way through the internet without um kind of being being completely lost uh is by by having something that authenticates things and then the question is okay well who do we trust to authenticate things do we trust elon musk's blue twitter checks to authenticate things <laughs> Uh, do we trust the New York Times to do it or the U.S. government um, or do we have some sort of open source solution that, you know, has market mechanisms? So, right. I, I think it's an interesting direction. Um, and, by the, and by the way, we should we should say as, as, as we talk about this and try and begin to get our heads around what this world uh, may in fact look like. Uh, that, you know, one of the, 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 I think, most frightening aspects of this uh, is this the rise of deep fakes with now uh, better artificial intelligence generating uh, some of those generative images and the ability to know, yes, this in fact was a, a, a video uh, that was taken, for example, of a speech that the president of the United States gave. Uh, we can we can actually see through a secure chain of custody based on the existing public key uh, encryption infrastructure 
that this is in fact it was shot on you know may may 8th uh 2023 and we know where it was because it was, it's geostamped uh from a particular location at a particular time the ability to do that blockchain seems to be uniquely well suited uh, to solve all of those challenges yeah um you know we were in a in the web 2 world it didn't really matter who makes the thing right so if i copy uh i don't know the matrix and upload it to youtube it doesn't matter that i didn't have rights to the matrix you don't care you're just enjoying that piece of content but if it's you know the, the president's speech it sort of does matter who makes it um, and if i have a, an ai hallucinated that's as convincing to a human being as a real a real life shot then it becomes a problem and so you, you need a, a way to counter that i think that's one direction is sort of like population scale problems i think another direction is this concept of agents, you know, so AI agents, and you'll see a lot of um, companies now trying to build um, things on top of the LLM that is tailored to an individual, you know, so what's your personal AI assistant that's trained on, you know, your content or your tastes and so on. And that becomes a really, what's your digital twin, basically. And then for me, that becomes both really interesting and super dangerous because it's very convenient to have a digital version of you live your digital life. Um, I think it's uh, seductive, you know, how much time you can save and so on. But it's also really dangerous because that thing is such a breach of um, sort of your privacy uh, and can put people in really bad situations if they're ever taken from you or used for a different purpose right so it's worse than losing your password uh, passwords it's losing not just your passwords but losing like the thing that's trained to behave as you with access to all your stuff that's a disconcerting so uh framework to think about <laughs> and, and by the way another thing that i i've been thinking about ai is obviously uh, there's the potential here to do uh, automated checks of code to make sure that there are no security flaws but then you, you start thinking about this and it probably becomes an ai arms race uh, between the people who are attempting to secure uh for example the code base and people who are attempting uh to then uh some find ways to breach it right so you're going through and you're you have these scans of uh of the code base to look to see if there are some vulnerabilities in smart contracts for example uh in the in the way that uh, something is is written uh, on an ethereum smart contract in solidity uh, or the language of your choosing so it is a really interesting uh type of future that we're talking about here with all of the security and privacy type aspects of this technology boy i could have this conversation with you lex for the next uh, four hours but unfortunately we're close to out of time but i wanted to go to you and get final thoughts and key takeaways we've covered a lot of ground here what would you like to leave our listeners and our viewers with lex yeah, I, you know, it's, we're in a really strange technological time uh, and we're in a really weird economic time as well. And I think it's easy to get lost uh, in the minutia um, because there's so much change uh, and there's also so much anxiety and stress. So for me, I've uh, tried to attach to like larger concepts that would make Web3 work. And I think that larger concept is, you know, is Web3, is, is this space just kind of a place for financial derivatives or is it um, a new emerging economy where people can 
uh, come and build businesses where they can contribute labor and in their labor they can create digital objects and digital services and then uh, take advantage of the economic and financial system that's much more modern and is available on Web3. And so that requires us much less to pull in the legacy and the traditional systems. Um, you know, and so for that reason, I've just been focused a lot on, uh, I guess, symptoms or evidence that shows that, yeah, there, there, there are communities that are building useful things. Those useful things are new and uh, uh, they're they're new and helpful uh, to other people, and that the communities persist despite the very difficult economic environment. Because we're going to have continued stress over the next year. Consumer discretionary spending is going to continue to be low. People's financial situations are are going to continue to be difficult. Interest rates are going to stay high. So I think during this market, the the companies and the projects that focus on building a native Web3 economy are much more likely to succeed than the projects that are trying to engineer financial outcomes and kind of play around uh, with something more shallow. And so um, I'm hopeful that the people who are watching this are interested in the space, that they want to build stuff and um, that they give it a shot. Lex, a fabulous conversation. We'll definitely have you back on the show to continue. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Remember to sign up to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. You can go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up there for free. Please join us again tomorrow. We'll have Barney Mannerings, co-founder of Vega, joining us. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, or 5 p.m. if you're in London. Thanks again for watching. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Today's episode of the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing is in partnership with Origin Protocol's Origin Dollar. Put your stablecoins to work in DeFi at realvision.com slash origin dollar.